Hey gamers, this is Liz Davidson from Beyond Solitaire, and I am once again not only going Beyond Solitaire, but Beyond the Board, this time with someone from my dark past, my former history teacher, Kirby Whitehead. How you doing, Kirby? Pretty good, Elizabeth. Pretty good. <laughs> so this is actually the first time that Kirby and I have talked since I was about 17 years old, I think. Is that right, Kirby? No, there was that one time in Chicago on Model UN. I think that's the last time we saw you. Oh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So not since I was about 18. <laughs> yeah, I was about 18. <laughs> so just to record this for posterity, I have to rib you about one thing, which is that even though we haven't talked much, we have been Facebook friends for years. And when I got my PhD, you did not say anything. But when you found out that I was on Dice Tower... You posted that you were very happy that an alum from our high school is on the Dice Tower. So you are oh, the yeah. teacher that was prouder of my board game videos than of my educational achievements. Thank you, well, sir. Your, your PhD was in something that we need, what, one or two of them every 20 years or something? Uh <laughs> it's kind of a, a, a sideward little specialty there. But a lot of people have to play solitaire games, especially, you know, look at what's going on now. That's true. Actually, do you solo game? I did that, and I do that with war games, because a lot of times when I'm playing a war game, it's much more to, like, look at the strategies and the changes. But not on a lot of other games. I really haven't been that much with solitaire. And with a game, you know, more the Euro or the... The other style games, if it's something that's got an AI and I can play it on iPad, like uh, Lords of Waterdeep or Splendor or something like that, I'll do that. But mostly the solo game has been war games. And a lot of times that was simply looking at the different strategies and tactics and what happened historically. But I still, even on a war game, prefer face-to-face -face if I can find someone. Interesting. So what's one of the reasons I got back in touch with you for this podcast in particular is that, you know, it's interesting looking back on my memories of high school and specifically my memories of your class. I remember playing so many games and, you know, I didn't play games very much in college, but in grad school, I fell right back in. And I think that I was primed by your class because I remember playing just like card games and all my other classes Sorry, all my teachers, but y'all y'all know I was playing card games in our classes. <laughs> but in your class, you know, we played Axis and Allies and we played Ivanhoe, which I actually now own for my students in the modern day. And, you know, I, I feel like we were playing a really different register of games with you. What inspired you to bring those to us and to make sure we were exposed? Um, I made my first game when I was 11 and it had to do with naval warfare. And I honestly don't know what kind of triggered to do that, but I'd always read about World War II in the Pacific, especially, and that's kind of what got me into history. And so then after I kind of made it, I started to discover that there were games like that. Uh, War at Sea was one of the very first games I got. And then uh, Advanced Third Reich, or actually it was just Third Reich and Squad Leader, both for one Christmas, I think, and um, had to be 1978 or something. But I, I learned a lot of the history I know from those games. Like even 
after that through high school as I got more games, that's where I picked up a lot of history. And so I always had this idea that this was one of the ways to present history. And it was accurate history. It, it was the games I was playing then were just pretty much straight up war games. And I'd always liked that part. And so that when I was in college, I started a game called Imperialism. And I did it as an independent study with a doctor counselor. Uh, he was in the history department and he was mostly U.S. history and social studies teaching techniques. And so I never had him in class, but I was interested in using simulation games in the classroom. And so he let me do an independent study and I tested it with kids in the morning when I was student teaching and it came out really well. And it, it looked somewhat like lit risk. It looks something like the imperialism that I still play today in my classroom. Um, but it was an opportunity. Like there were actually professors and stuff thought this was a good idea. And then I started teaching for real and games went out for a couple of years because when I started teaching, it kind of overwhelmed. Um, but I picked it up in middle school, my third year of teaching. I did this little game and it was more skill-based. It was just on Dr. Livingston in Africa, but the students had to measure on a map. They had to measure scale and they had to do latitude and longitude and do clues and a little bit of history. And so there were times in middle school that I was doing games and they're mostly based on skills and a little problem solving, but it was really easy to figure out that students could be motivated by one, it was different. It was different than what normally happened in class. And if you're talking about measuring latitude and longitude and you want to build in math and other things, no one really wants to sit down and do the equations. But if you play a game called Around the World in 80 Days and you have this little, uh, initially it was just a little piece of paper. Eventually it was one of these first little kind of apps you could use uh, written in JavaScript where you could figure out, well, how far does a balloon go? How far does camel go or railroad and make a measure places that they're a lot more interested in it because it was a competition who could do it the fastest. And so that's kind of where it began. That's interesting. So I feel like gaming and teaching then has been something that's been with you for your entire career. And I just happened to know you at one of the way stations along to where you are now. So now what you do sounds really interesting. You are incorporating some really complicated games, especially into Model UN, including things like coin games. So yeah. how are you doing that? So when you had in European history and we were doing Ivanhoe, one of the things I'd noticed in Model UN, we had done things uh, mostly just on the side, but for conferences and downtime, students were playing um, Atlantic Storm, which really... It's a nice card game. I really like it, but it doesn't have too much history. But what I was noticing is how did the students that were playing it and they knew the names of all these ships and what sunk what and they were remembering it. And so it's like, well, this may be a good way of doing review. And so even with the imperialism game, which was always kind of a cornerstone of my world history course, uh, Part of it was about the history, but then part of it was just kind of building up review. To play imperialism, there were review things you had to do. Uh, it's a card-driven game now, and so to play cards, you had to answer review questions. 
But with Model UN, it started to take a different kind of approach. We started to see around 2005 or six, started to see these uh, Model UN events and they call them crisis committees where you were running a historical event and it wasn't like it was just, okay, we're going and we're looking at this broad problem to fix, like how do you fund electric production in East Africa or something like that? It was something that was based on maybe a historical event, uh, the Arab-Israeli crisis in 1967, or maybe um, the, the Suez crisis, maybe a crisis in the British Parliament right before the English Civil War. They were doing a lot of historical stuff. And part of that was really nice. But then what I was seeing is that the students that were running it, mostly college students run these conferences initially, and then even high school students that were running their conferences, everybody now likes to do a crisis. They didn't know really how to respond to how, what students were doing. Like students would say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And a lot of it, okay, they're going to do it, but there really weren't the consequences being assigned for doing something that was just stupid or doing something that wasn't practical in the time period, economically too costly, socially too costly. And so I really didn't like the crisis committees, even though some of my best Model UN students always wanted to do them, because one, I think some of the students look like we don't have to prepare as much. We just read a little bit and then we ad lib everything. And to me, that right. wasn't really getting into the role very much. And then second, the students that were running it, they met well, but they didn't have really good constraints. And so uh, I want to say we we do our own conference in about, I almost want to say it's about nine years ago, but we pulled out uh, Cuba Libre, the, the coin on the Cuban revolution. And we advertised and we said, look, we're going to do this. These are the characters we have. Uh, we're kind of trying this out new. And we got a small group. And so on the day of our conference, they did basically a crisis committee, but they had to do it in the realms of the game. And so it's a card driven, the, the coin system, basically there's cards driving it. So there are some events that you can't control. Or you can kind of manipulate a certain way. And there are these four factions. And so the factions of the four, two met in one room, two met in another, they could communicate with each other a little bit. And then we kind of, Initially, it was a lot like playing the game, but as we learned, we got more and more where the students just make the decision, and then in another room, the game kind of plays based on their decision. And so when they do something that historically would be a costly or a bad decision, because it's in the realm of the game, there is a consequence, and you don't do as well because you're doing these things that don't play well. It might sound good, but you're not considering all the actual repercussions, whether they are financial, uh, it could be political in other places. And so like this year, we were actually going to do uh, Next War Poland, also from GMT. I had several students interested in modern conflict. Uh, they're in my AP Model UN research class. We do something called AP Capstone now. And so in the research class, I have students that get to spend a whole year on a single topic. And so the first semester, they were looking at the modern 
relationships in Eastern Europe, especially between Russia and Poland, Russia and the European Union, NATO and Russia. And then we were going to use this game uh, format to simulate a potential conflict, which they could try to avoid. But if they did go into conflict, the real resources available, the repercussions of what they do would play out in the game. Unfortunately, because of the uh, the pandemic and distance learning, um, the conference itself was canceled. But we had done previously, We had, last year, uh, we did a game on the Peloponnesian War, and then we did also uh, the old Avon Hill Machiavelli. So we've done this several times, and we've had really good results. And I think mostly it's from the the sponsors coming back and saying, you know, this was a crisis committee and the kids stay involved, but it was, it didn't go crazy or it didn't do things that historically just would never happen. And so we've been really interested in doing that. And I've been doing that not just in the Model UN, but a couple of years ago started to incorporate it more in my European AP class, which is the world history AP class. We already have this long running one, but in the Euro AP class, we've used Here I Stand and Virgin Queen. Uh, we use Twilight Struggle usually after the AP exam, just as kind of a wrap up along with 1989 and really have a, a solid sense of, uh, of the students getting something out of it. And the Napoleonic Wars too, the card driven game from GMT. Uh, if you play that and you have a student that's France and they're not Napoleon, boy, there's a real difference than if you play it and there's someone that is very aggressive as France. And so... I think it brings a lot of the history to life, but it also keeps it where the history is still there. Some of these games are really good at making sure the history stays there. And kind of like the coin system, because the history is there, but it does have a lot of freedom of action and it works well with the model UN simulations. But then other things like when you're doing European AP, uh, doing something like here I stand, there's so much history into it. And the asymmetrical way it plays was different uh, Different groups having different goals has worked really well. So I have a question. Coin games are notoriously complicated to teach uh, and to learn for people. You know, all those rule books kind of freak a lot of people out these days. Yeah. But you have got high schoolers basically playing a version of it. So have you distilled the game down to where it's something that's a little bit more like role-playing or, I mean, how much of the game do they actually have to know for this to work? Okay, so that has been one of the things, and it's why it works really well for the Model UN, because what we'll do is, even over the summer, and I have a couple already thinking about next year, they'll start to learn one of the games, and then we'll play it in class several times. Maybe not the whole game, but we'll play some of the initial turns, We'll get a core of students that will, in, in the classroom, play it. Um, then we'll have a few that will come before or after school and they'll play it. So that when the students that actually go into the simulation that are coming from schools all over the place and are coming for one day, they're role playing. They have a role. They want to get these things done. But as they say, okay, this is what I want to do, and we get these uh, action orders, they'll go into a room and then the kids that are actually playing the game, I would almost call them like refs, they will then make what happens into what happens in the game. 
the order will come in and say, well, if you're going to do that, this is what it will look like. And then they'll send back, this is what happened. And so we, we don't have students having to know all those complex rules from the whole broad spectrum of students that are participating. That's where the model UN part. In the classroom, it's a little different because they are playing, uh, but usually they're playing in larger groups. They get a copy of the rules. I'll walk them through it. Uh, we start kind of slow. And I've also started to though realize that the more role playing they're doing, the better it generally is. Because we're not really bringing them in to teach them a game. Now, what I find is that a lot of students that once they go through this, they want to learn the games. And, and we always have students that are coming back and do a game club every year or something like that. But the initial part, the role playing is what you're trying to push because you're trying to say, okay, they're, they're actors in history and these are who the actors are. And the game allows for consequences for actions. And, and that's the real reason to put the game in there because getting that consequences part is what's always missing. Like this was missing when we initially did the, okay, you have a model UN crisis and you do all these crazy things, there's no consequence. But it's even like when you tell a student, okay, put yourself in this role and write this little you know, letter, how would a soldier feel in World War I battlefront? Well, yeah, that, that only goes so far um, to really demonstrate what happened. But when you take a small group and you played, um, what is it, the Grizzled, it's a little World War One kind of frontline game. Um, yeah. It, that's different because you get, there's, there's something happened. You do something and something happens back. And, and that's the part that the game really brings in. And with the, um, w with the classroom setting, uh, this was something that we kind of realized and I did it. There's this thing called reacting to history and it's kind of an R role-playing game that college courses have been doing. And I did it a couple of years ago, the arts in Paris. And it was about the Paris exposition uh, that kind of brought in impressionism and every student is assigned a role. Well, now when we do here, I stand this coming year. So we always had six groups. You had the Protestants, you had the papacy, you had the French, you had the, uh, the English and the Spanish and so forth. Well, now, even if you're in the English, you're going to have a specific role and you're going to have specific things that your person would like to see that is maybe not everybody else in the English side would like to see. And giving them where they're much more into that role and they have very specific goals really seems to improve the gameplay, but more importantly, kind of the understanding what's happening historically. And so that's kind of been the evolution. And part of that has come through the understanding what we see in Model UN, where you don't make them so much play the game as play this role, but the game provides consequences. And then in the classroom where we've been doing the games, I, I think this works even better to get them to buy into it. I mean, there's always someone that wants to play that game to win the game, but you're trying to get a class of 30 students on that same page. Yeah, how do you do that with 30 students? I asked this as a fellow professional with a classroom management question. Yeah. That is impressive. <laughs> well, um, for the beginning, like the world history classroom I have is a 10th grade classroom. And there are some students in there. there it's an AP course. I mean, that definitely a lot of them are very motivated. But you still have this 
problem of that many of them just like, what's on the task? Tell me the bare minimum I need to do. And so when we do imperialism, the game that we do, it's part of the second semester. We play maybe once a week throughout the semester until the AP exam. And then we play until the end of the school year every day. Um, they're in the role of a country. They want their country to win because if they're leading at the end of a turn, they get extra credit. First off, if you're doing any kind of game or role playing, you got to give extra credit. If you give them a normal grade, they don't really seem to notice. They'll kill themselves for extra credit. I don't know why. doesn't make any sense. Mathematically, it's dumb. But they will put more into getting that little bit extra credit than anything else they'll do. That, that's number one. I can verify this from experience. Yeah, it's just... <laughs> It's crazy. So you give them any, it's substantial. Um, it's seven points on any test or essay. So as the tests come up, whoever won the last term in that class, they get seven points on it. And so that motivates them. Then the second part is that the imperialism is also a chance for us to kind of take a day out where they are doing something, but there's time to catch up and review. I don't like just two weeks before the exam, we're going to review. So to play cards, it's a card-driven game mostly. To play the cards, they have to answer some of these short questions. And everyone in the group Ooh. ultimately has to bring up some. So they get this blanket packet of questions. And they start answering them at the beginning. And someone in the group is kind of there monitoring that they always have some question pages done so they can turn them in. And so if this is just a kid that doesn't want to play the game, there is still something concrete they have to do. And it's part of their participation grade, which is part of my classroom grade, that, that they're doing these question packs. If they're not up in front of the room and managing their country, they're at least working on these, these um, review packets. And so there is something that has to be done. And, and that seems to work fairly well. The reacting to history I like, a lot because every kid has this individual role and for them to win there are certain individual goals and it's a lot more difficult to set up uh, there's a lot more involved but when i played it with my euro history a couple years ago they really got into this they really bought into it largely and so then when we applied it to things like here i stand or the uh, napoleonic war there were French marshals that were competing against each other because different marshals had these different goals and if they could take certain objectives. So they would even not always cooperate within their group, which is historically much more accurate. There was a lot of rivalry, or could be. You still wanted to win, but everybody wants the glory. Everybody wants the marshal baton. And so I found that the more you give them, like, this is what you have to get done. And it's fairly concrete. When they're just playing a game and they're a group of four or five, they know they can get lost in that. But then if there's something specifically they have to get done, whether it's just a little review set or if it's a specific job on the team that this gets turned in or this gets checked, uh, like in imperialism, there's someone that's involved with the map. And so randomly I'll call out, you know, who's over here in this part of the map? And they need to know that then that tends to do better if they have that thing that kind of can be held over their head. And then if they don't know it, they, they lose. It's part of the grade. Participation is 10% of our grade. Interesting. 
So I've talked to you about this as a teacher, but I'm also just so curious about this as a hobbyist. So are the kids who are choosing these games, like Here I Stand, I mean, the, are the children choosing those or are you no, guiding no. them toward those this choices? Is, this is my curriculum. Like I, okay. I'm, I design what I'm going to do over the summer. And these are things that I've chosen because of the curriculum. Um, they fit. Got uh, it. To teach... For instance, the Reformation. Uh, Here I Stand is great because if you read the textbook, in part you get, okay, there's these religious ideas. And then in the other part, there's things like there are wars. But when you throw it against each other and you see that there are these people out there and they're motivated totally by this different thing. And then there's these countries that are politically doing this. It really blends it a lot better. And so Here I Stand and Virgin Queen are really good at doing that just flat out really, really good at doing that. Um, I, I used to play, and now I don't really because of time, because Here I Stand does it better, but a couple times I'd done uh, years ago, the 30 Years War, and it was nice because it did show that a state like Germany just in the Holy Roman Empire phase in the 1600s, it just didn't exist. There's no front lines. There's no clear boundaries. Everybody is just everywhere. It's very chaotic, and I think students got a lot from that. But I think they even get more if you do Here I Stand or Virgin Queen because it's such a mix of all these things going on. Like Virgin Queen brings in uh, the, the art, which is in itself not important, but the wealth that it reflects, like the wealthier states and the rise of the economy in England versus some of the other places and how that's mirrored. And if you can get that to work right, you're going to win. So. No, but these are these are things that I pick because it's got to be part of the curriculum. All right. So before I let you go, do you have any tips for teachers, I think, especially who want to incorporate more gaming into their own classrooms? What's a good way to start? So one, you have to realize that this might not work right the first time. <laughs> right. <laughs> you might play a day. And you're like, wow, this is just not getting it. Um, and then kind of be able to stop and just, you know, let your kids know. It's like, okay, we're going to experiment with this. I really, though, I find it much more intellectually rewarding for the students when it's actually a game that is trying to build in some content. I mean, I did numerous games in middle school that had themes like uh, the Holy Grail. We had a four by eight sheet of plywood. This was before computers were readily available. And kids were crawling on the ground, measuring, trying to do these clues. But they were doing scale and they were doing latitude and longitude. And those were important skills. But it wasn't really like the historical content. And I liked it because they did get the skills. It was interesting to them. You could test that they were getting those skills. Uh, I think games like we have these Jeopardy games that are review and stuff like that. Uh, that's not really what I'm talking about. It's not that there's anything wrong with it. And even the imperialism game that we do, there's a review component. But at the end of the year, there's second semester exam because um, they've already had the AP World Test. So we don't test them on content, but I just have them write up, why did your country win or lose in imperialism? What happens? And they're writing about mercantilism and the balance of power and, and things that are the causes of World War I, which is where imperialism ends. 
And they're writing and they're able to use the historical term because they really do seem to get it. They played it long enough that they got an understanding of it. So I think there's really building some good content and understanding into it. And to me, that's kind of where you want to get. The problem is getting there and then seeing if it happens. You have to decide, okay, I'm going to try this. Uh, The card driven games I really think are some of the best because they do present historical events in part as people making choices. I'm going to do this or I'm not going to do this. And then when you throw in a few Mm -hmm. mandatory cards that, you know, you can't get around this, that's great too, because they, you start to point out that, Hey, history sometimes happens whether you want it to or not. Uh, A game like twilight struggle And I would say one of the things I really like about Twilight Struggle in 1989 is that you can play them at the end of the year. So after you kind of finish, especially if you were doing an AP course, but even a U.S. history course, if you've kind of done your end of the year test to say, okay, I want to go back and talk about the Cold War a little bit more, you can do the the game and you have a little bit more leeway on how long you're going to make it last and how you're going to incorporate it. And so it might be best to kind of do this at the end of the year, the first time you try it, just because you don't have to worry about, am I taking too much time? Am I missing something else? It's kind of a really good wrap up. And then when you see how your student body responds to it, how you respond to it, because as a teacher, there are some things you need to let go of and let students have choices to make. Uh, might be better. If you start at the beginning of the year, start small. Start maybe with a few little things that are little games that maybe even you kind of develop that are just to get the students this mindset that, okay, we're going to do something and you're going to be competing against each other, but you're also going to have to be fulfilling some of your own goals, um, whatever it might be that you want to get done, and, and kind of let them work in those teams a little bit. But keep it limited. Like when we play here, I stand at the beginning of the year. It's two weeks, but it's kids that I mostly know and they're upperclassmen, they're juniors or seniors. And I've done games a lot. If you were starting a Euro class next year and the first thing you did was here, I stand, I think it'd be really, really difficult. You kind of have to work your way into it. You have to get comfortable with it. The reacting to history, the role-playing, the simulations that are out there and they're available you can search on, on Google reacting to history, but a lot of the booklets are available through even Amazon. Uh, you can kind of look and get an idea, and those are much more scripted. It might be easier for someone to work their way into because there's a lot more control than you, than you would get in the game. Students are still making decisions. There's still a lot of good stuff in there, but it's it's a lot more for the teacher scripted, like on this day, do this, on this day, do this, on this day, do this. And so maybe it's a little bit more comforting when you try to put it into your classroom. And then once you see how that works, then you can say, okay, so if I wanted to do a simulation, it was something more on the Reformation. You know, how would I make Kira Stan do that? Yeah, work work with another teacher too. I, I did it my own, but like I said, I did my first game when I was 11. So this was like, oh, I, I love doing this. But recently for the last seven years now i've worked with another world history ap teacher we both do imperialism you know it was easy to bring him into it this is what we do um 
and his kids like it too. He does it a little different uh, the way he presents it in his class, but it's still kind of putting him in that situation. And so, yeah, get an ally, get someone to work with. Nice. So I can be found anywhere on the internet as Beyond Solitaire, but Kirby, if somebody has a question about Wargaming the Classroom for you, where could they find you? kwhite1 at n-e-i-s-d dot net. So it's it's white, it's just the word white, kwhite, and then the number one at n-e-i-s-d dot net. Or you can just search Kirby Whitehead. I'm at Reagan High School. My page should come up. Ah, uh, still at good old Ronald Reagan High. Ronald Reagan High School. 21 <laughs> years now. 21 years since we've been open and 21 years there, yep. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to us, everybody. And get in touch if you want, if you have questions. Happy gaming.